But also, you know, Charlie and the Magnificence being an interracial band, that's really important. But uh, it's also important to remember that they weren't the only ones. Um, there were many instances where um, there would be musical collaborations between whites and blacks during that period. In fact, uh, yeah, the Dynamic Deltones is one of the groups uh, who may even have pre prefigured Charlie and the Magnificence. They eventually became the Wild Thing and recorded for Frank Guida. Um, there was also a guy who recorded for Shiptown. Uh, his name was Art Inslee. I don't know if you know about Art. Uh, Art was a, a, a white singer who recorded for Shiptown, which was a black label. So you had these instances uh, where whites and blacks were getting together and making music together. Um, while it was rare, it wasn't unprecedented. In fact, even the uh, Norfolk Sound recordings that Frank Guida made, they, that, those were also collaborations. Uh, you had um, uh, Guida and his uh, cohort, Joe Royster, who is his engineer, uh, kind of creating these songs and scoring national hits uh, with uh, Gene Barge, uh, who was a teacher at uh, one of the local high schools uh, who had played with Chuck Willis. He had done the uh, sax solos on C.C. Uh, Ryder and Betty and Dupree. Um, and Gary U.S. Bonds, of course, was discovered by, uh, by Guida, like on one of the local street corners, singing with his doo-wop group. Um, so uh, it wasn't unprecedented that uh, whites and blacks would have been making music together during that period. It, in fact, it, it looks like it was sort of something that happened. And, uh, well, one of the things we want to talk about, if we could take a step back mm -hmm. and just sort of the Norfolk sound, if you can kind of define that and, and just give us just a general kind of overview. Or Well, you know, these days it's kind of come to represent the total sound that was being made by a lot of different people, but specifically... The Norfolk sound uh, is referring to the recordings uh, made by Frank Guida uh, in Norfolk in the 50s and, and in the 60s uh, and into the 70s. Um, Guida was a New Yorker uh, uh, from the East Bronx, uh, neighborhood of Fordham, and he moved to uh, Norfolk, Virginia in the early 50s and started a record store called Frankie's Birdland. And um, not only was it a popular record store, but he also was one of the main distributors for this region for R&B records, for jazz records. In fact, he became so powerful as a distributor that he later got Ahmed Erdogan uh, from Atlantic to go along with some pretty nutty schemes. Uh, most specifically, uh, the recording of High School USA, which was maybe Guida's uh, first big production, certainly his largest production, where he... Um, he tailor-made 30 different versions of a song called High School USA, each one of them regionally flavored. Um, uh, you'd have the Indiana version, where, you, where Indiana high schools would be uh, sung about. And you'd have, you know, the Texas version, where it'd be Texas high schools. So literally, Tommy Facenda, the vocalist, uh, had to go through and record 30 or more than 30, I think, versions of the same song, each tailor-made to a particular region. Um, Guida, that was probably Guida's first big production. He got Atlantic to put all these out. And while it, you know, it was a, it was a, re it, it was a sort of a small hit. It certainly wasn't going to make him the million dollars that he thought. But from there, he started recording um, local talent, um, 
mo most specifically, Gary U.S. Bonds. Uh, he had a uh, huge hit with him um, called New Orleans. Um, and then followed that up with Quarter to Three, which uh, is now considered one of the pivotal songs in, in rock and roll history. Um, quarter to Three is interesting uh, in how lo-fi it is. Uh, it's amazing uh, to some people that this was ever a hit, much less a number one hit. Um, in fact, when the record first came out, jocks wouldn't play it because they thought it was cutting the crapper. Uh, that's a that's a quote from one of the DJs. Well, it was. It was recorded in the bath. The vocals were cut in the bathroom of Guida's studio because they had the best echo. Uh, one critic um, years ago said that it quarter to three was the most democratic record ever made. Uh, he had played it on a stereo system worth twenty thousand dollars, and he'd played it on a kid's little sit and spin record player, and the song sounded exactly the same. Uh, this booming. Um, Booming drums, uh, many overdubbed vocals, uh, the, the analog hiss almost becoming a part of the song. Um, that weird kind of peculiar sound resonated with a lot of people. In fact, uh, John Lennon, when he was stocking his personal jukebox, made sure that he had Quarter to Three and New Orleans on it. Um, and the Beatles early on in Germany would perform many of the Gary U.S. Bonds hits that were recorded in Norfolk. Later, um, Guida discovered another local singer named James McLeese, and he renamed him Jimmy Soul. Jimmy Soul um, had uh, numerous hits as well, including um, a song called If You Want to Be Happy, which hit number one on the charts in 1963. And that kind of pinpoints another unusual quality to the Norfolk Sound uh, recordings of uh, Frank Guida, um, the calypso element. When uh, Frank Guida was in, uh, stationed in the West Indies uh, in the 40s, he discovered calypso music, and he would even go down to the tents where it was performed and with a pad and pencil and write down the lyrics. Um, he recorded countless Calypso songs, rewrites, basically. Um, and If You Want to Be Happy by Jimmy Soul was one of them. Uh, that's a rewrite of the Roaring Lion song, Ugly Woman, which uh, is a fairly famous Calypso number. Um, of course, uh, Frank and his uh, uh, collaborator, Joe Royster, put their names on If You Want to Be Happy. Uh, which is interesting because uh, one other thing that Frank Guida loved to do, he loved to sue other songwriters who <laughs> he, uh, he thought appropriated uh, his songs. In fact, he even had several songs about stealing songs. Uh, there's a song called Copycat, and there's a song called I'm Gonna Sue. Uh, so uh, the Norfolk Sound recordings that were made in Norfolk had a particular, had several particular interesting things about them. Um, the fact that they were being made in Norfolk being one of them, not exactly what you'd known as a hotbed of national recording activity. Um, but you didn't just have Guida, you also had down the street from uh, Frankie's Birdland was a record store called Nimrod's. And Nimrod's was owned by Noah Biggs. And Noah Biggs started the Shiptown label, which was sort of Norfolk's answer to Motown. Um, and 
several different, uh, many different groups and performers performed on Shiptown um, and also um, would record with Guida too. So there was this sort of sharing of artists between the two labels sometimes. Ida Sands being one of them. Um, I believe the, the Anglos being another. Um, so you had quite the thriving music scene there. We're not even talking now about the live music scene that was going on at the time, the, the music scene that Charlie would, would have been uh, front and center. Um, uh, the, the live music scene was also really hot uh, and had uh, just uh, an amazing array of, of great groups. Norfolk was important um, to R&B music at that time, the late 50s and early 60s, because it was the place where many of the um, African-American package tours would start. Uh, the ones that would go around, uh, you know, on big tours, well, their first uh, stop was generally Norfolk, and that would be where people would rendezvous uh, and get everybody together to go on these big tours. So um, also a, 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 a place where uh, many of the national recording artists would come through. It was a, it was a hotbed of music. Yeah. Um, if, what years are we talking about roughly here? Um, well, Guido would have made his first recording in, say, 1954, he recorded his first Calypso song, maybe 57, and then uh, he started having hits in 59 with High School USA. Uh, New Orleans popped in 1960, and quarter to three was 1961. Okay. Um, now, what happened was, <clears throat> Frank Guida was kind of a difficult man to work with, apparently. He started shedding uh, his uh, collaborators around 1963. 1964. So, after a while, he didn't have Gene Daddy G Barge with him, and and his uh, his uh, collaborator Joe Royster eventually left uh, and moved to Las Vegas. Um, so it was, a, and the Church Street Five, the backing band for many of the Gary U.S. Bonds hits, they were starting to do less and less with him. So that's when we start getting into Guido working with some of the local bands like Charlie McClendon and the Magnificence and uh, maybe more famously, Bill Deal and the Rondells. He was really the guy who, I mean, he sank a lot of money into Bill Deal and the Rondells before they were ever onto the whole beach music uh, fad to try to establish them as stars. Um, so he worked with them a lot, and, and he worked with, um, like I said, a lot of the local groups in the area, like the Sheiks, the Anglos. Uh, really, he tried just about everything. But around 1963-64 is when he started to he started to do less himself, and he started to have Linus Guess, a uh, prominent singer and producer from Norfolk, do a lot of the uh, handle a lot of the studio work. Linus is the one I believe who brought Charlie McClendon and the Magnificence in uh, to help him with uh, the the song uh, "Just Ask Me." Um, I think that's the name of it. Is it, is it just? Ask, I think it's just Ask Me. Uh, flip side of Working for My Baby. And um, that was a regional hit. And, and they were, you know, they were the backing band mm -hmm. on that. Um, and I also think, although I don't specifically know what songs, I also think they backed up Gary U.S. Bonds later in the 60s. Mm -hmm. well, you know, after the Church Street Five, it had kind of, I don't know, had their fill of Frank Guida. Yeah, he talked about, Charlie talked about, that they, uh, you know, that they were under contract with Guida, mm -hmm. and I guess it was just a one-year contract, as a backup band, 
that they did that actually for a while, a little while, mm-hmm. but that um, Guido would never record them. Charlie, yeah, McCoy, as a band, yeah, as a band. So they that's when they essentially uh, wouldn't sign another contract with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. 